Hey, you've just entered the, uh, the law offices of Quibble Squabble and Bicker. If you've come for actual legal advice, you need to turn right around, honey. You need to get out of here, because you ain't going to get none of that. They quibble, and they squabble, and they bicker. But if you want to hear meaningless opinions, this is the right place. They got plenty of that. Stuff that makes no sense at all. They go off on tangents. It's crazy talk. If that's your thing, keep listening. They'll keep talking. Oh no no, oh no no, it's another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. You've entered the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. Welcome to another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker on this May 29th, 2021, still mid-pandemic, but though there is a light at the end of the tunnel, we have an extra special guest today. It's an actual lawyer, unlike us, who pretend to be lawyers and, do, and know nothing. Um, but this is a, a gentleman who has been at the forefront of the digital age. He was once a vice president for Prodigy, Prodigy Communications back in the 90s, back at the time when that was a big deal, um, along with America Online, CopyServe, um, Earthlink, a number of other well-known names in that field. Um, he is uh, currently an, a media and entertainment lawyer, as well as um, produces uh, different uh, movies, uh, including two movies right now called uh, The Virtuoso and Snow Babies. Virtuoso is with Anthony Hopkins. Snow Babies is with people that uh, I have no idea who are in them, but um, he says they're good movies, so you should see them. Anyway, and he'll be helping us out later on with our client, Cancel Me, too. So uh, we'll get into that much later. Anyway, Mark Jacobson, thank you so much for coming on. I, we were surprised to find out that an attorney was actually willing to come on our fake attorney show, and uh, especially one with your qualifications. And uh, Well, I can that? always hang up, so it's no problem. True, and then it would be me and Greg talking to each other. We've done that plenty, so we'd, we'd much rather have you here. So what um, what is it about the current era of the digital age that because i would say you were kind of a visionary if you got involved with prodigy back in the early 90s you know you would have to have some kind of a clue that there's something big happening here since you actually put money invested money into it um what is it now that you see is like the next big thing in terms of uh, information the information age i've never been asked that um i guess it's all about you know people say content is king and Content is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. What's really king is distribution. Um, if you have the eyeballs, as it was even back in the mid-90s when I started, uh, you have the ability to make money. The content will find you. So at Prodigy, we had like a million subscribers, and AOL had, AOL had many millions, and CompuServe had hundreds of thousands. But now when you look at the numbers that companies like Spotify and Netflix have, there are hundreds of millions of people. So the ability to reach hundreds of millions of people is really what's going on. And I suppose here in the United States, the big issue is um, the ability to speak your mind and whether the government is going to conclude that outlets like Facebook and Twitter are utilities and therefore subject to government regulation as opposed to purely private enterprises. For example, the telephone company is a utility and therefore it has to carry whatever you want to put on it. So if I want to send an infringing uh, movie over a telephone line to you, 
the phone company can't stop me because it's a utility and it's regulated that way. But if the, if Twitter and broadband and Facebook and Instagram are conceived as utilities, the regulation platform will be significantly enhanced. I don't think they will be. I think they will always be private property. And that's why uh, the conservatives will hate it when people um, remove their content. Well, you kind, of put to, you kind of put together broadband with social media. I mean, I can see broadband more as a utility as opposed to like Facebook or Twitter or something like that. Yeah, well, we, we went through that back in the 90s when we were when when AOL bought um, Time Warner because the, right. the purchase was all about the distribution, the, the cable network. That's what it was all about. People talked about it as a content play. But AOL was after the distribution because that way its subscribers could get its content faster. So that's really what went on there. And there was a lot of regulatory discussion there. And as we all know, that merger fell apart. But um, it, what they were really after was the broadband. So it's kind of like modern day um, times, like what, what Rockefeller did back in the turn of the, the 20th century of taking over the railroads and his own trucking lines to move his oil so that uh, he wouldn't have to pay extra fees. And that's where regulation came in, in that place, right? right? Right, because then they became utilities. Actually, it also happened back when radio came out in the 40s, right? Because radio was brand new and people were controlling it. It ultimately became a utility and therefore regulated because there was an, a finite amount of radio spectrum available. What you have now is an infinite amount of, of distribution capacity. So the need to regulate it is a bit different. So how do podcasts come into play since, you know, that's what the format that we're doing right now. And it's interesting distribution going on from this as well. I mean, because essentially we're just recordings. We are recording things and then people find them somehow, you know, across the, uh, the Internet. But would podcasting platforms also come under that regulation? I don't think so. I, I think what, what's interesting is happening in, in, in um, podcasts for me anyway as a music lawyer is that there are people who are posting um, continuous, uh, you know, an hour's worth of infringing music and putting it up on Spotify. And then you can listen to it as a podcast and no royalties get paid because the podcast platform is free of royalties. So all of the infringing music is recorded. That's an infringement. The uploading it to Spotify is an infringement and Spotify's distribution of it is a further infringement. And they're getting away with it because it's very difficult to stop that because Spotify hasn't yet figured out that people are doing that. I think they figured out a little bit. Spotify um, owns the actually the podcasting platform that we use, which is Anchor. And I've known of a number of different podcasts that have put music up, and, and Anchor has basically shut them down for putting up copyrighted uh, music. But yeah, I mean, I guess because there's millions of different podcasts, it's very tricky on how to police that uh, properly. I know it's policed pretty well on YouTube. Uh, for example, Don Henley has like a team of like 60 people that he has constantly pulling infringing infringing music of his from youtube all the time and shutting people down but yeah, um, the youtube solution is a very interesting solution the law says that if you put up my music illegally i have a right to make you take it down what youtube has said is yeah we'll give you that right 
but we'll also let you collect money against it if you let us put ads against it. So they've actually added another factor in there and people are suggesting that that is the right way to handle user-generated content, which contains infringements. And that's really a choice for the uh, copyright owner, right? The copyright owner can decide, no, I don't want you to make any money. I don't want you to use it. I want it to come down. But what YouTube says is if you put your music into our content ID system and you allow us to monetize it, we will monetize it all you won't get a chance to take the really offensive one down. It's all monetized. So they're changed because they're so big and so powerful, they're able to change the way people look at copyright without regard to what the law says, which is interesting to me. But, you know, most of the time I tell my clients to allow them to monetize because they do this to make money and there's almost no way to stop it from happening. Sure, well, you're, as a team of people doing it, there are companies that hire other companies that do nothing but send out thousands of notices, but there's no way to stop it. Well, you were one of the architects of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act back in, well, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000s, as part of as being attorney for Prodigy. Um, so you were kind of instrumental in creating this issue to a certain extent. Um, in terms of your participation in helping create that legislation. Um, who do you think has been the most positively impacted by it? And and I'm assuming that uh, just user-generated aspects have been most negatively impacted by it. I don't know who's been... Po I guess copyright owners have an ability to stop it. Um, the, what's happened, the challenge is... If, I if you have posted my content unlawfully and I send a takedown notice, you can send a counter notice. And what happens is that counter notice will cause the host to keep the work up, even if your counter notice is bogus. So if you know you've infringed, but you lie and say you have the right to do it, the work stays up and I'm left filing the lawsuit, which is exactly what we tried to avoid. The whole concept behind the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was to send a notice to make the host take down the infringing work with just a letter, as opposed to bringing a lawsuit and getting an injunction, because that's tens of thousands of dollars. And the idea was to make it available to everybody. Well, what's happened is that wise guys have gotten wise and they are posting these counter notices so the work stays up even when it's not supposed to. And I hear from music publishers and record companies all the time about um, how that's completely unfair. And they're right, it is. So to some degree, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act needs, um, needs revision. The premise of the act actually took further what was um, originally in the law and that the copyright proprietor has to look and make sure no one's infringing his work. It's just that much more difficult. And we knew there would be organizations that were formed that did nothing but look for works. And YouTube's technology for the content ID to hear the song and all that stuff is actually, uh, you know, now can be done by many companies. So you can engage third parties to find your music and send notices and take it down. And they can't do everything, but they get a lot of it. That, that's the challenge with it today. Yeah, I mean, the internet landscape has changed so drastically just since 2000. I mean, just in the last 20 years, it's just been, 
it's staggering. It I, don't, really I don't think anybody could really predict it. Although I saw an interview uh, a few weeks ago that was run in 1985 where Isaac Asimov was being interviewed by David Letterman. And Asimov actually predicted YouTube. He said there would come a time when everybody would have their own TV channel. And I'm like, so there's some people out there who can like see beyond the rest of us and go, this is where I can kind of see these things heading. Um, and uh, I don't know, the legal landscape, I it's not someplace I think I would get. I, very I was happy involved with. in a movie uh, some years ago called The Last Film Festival with Dennis Hopper and Joe Beth Williams and Chris Catan. And it was a movie that was purportedly shot on a cell phone. It was like, it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So it was actually pretty. Chris Catan ran around shooting on a cell phone. I was about to say that's probably why I never heard of it because Chris Catan was involved. But anyway. Where did you grow up, Mark? <laughs> where did you, what part of the country did you grow up in? Uh, New York. Uh, Brooklyn and Long Island. Do you, have you lived there your whole life? Yeah. Did you always want to be a lawyer? Was this like a childhood dream? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Even though all the jokes that, right? about... Yeah, even all the anti-joke, uh, the jokes about lawyers being bad all the time. I never got those. Is There's so many like hack comedians making those, oh, what do you call 50 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. You know, well, I think those jokes go back to like at least the 1300s. You know, no one's yeah, really probably. been huge fans of lawyers if they've been trying to uh, get away with things. <laughs> but I, even as a kid, I knew that. Now, well, yeah, it's probably bad lawyers out there because it's almost like having a superpower. Yeah, you can do great bad and you do great good it, well so. it's interesting like i became a lawyer in 1977 back in 1977 lawyers were relatively uh well respected in 1976 or 75 i think it was maybe 77 i don't remember the u.s supreme court said it was okay for lawyers to advertise and before that lawyers could not advertise for i remember that all of a sudden those ads popped up on local tv and so what happened is the, the reputation and the respect that lawyers had went right into the toilet. So it became really hard to maintain some level of dignity and professionalism. You know, my father told me, yeah, being a lawyer is a, is a respected, a learned profession. He was a dentist. So, you know, it was the same kind of thing, but it, it changed. And it has become insanely competitive and very, very difficult. It's not the same as it was when I'm in 77, 78 when I first started. I wonder, too, if the reputation of law lawyers are seen as more adversarial because I think big corporate America has gotten more powerful. So a lot of times you think of like, oh, the corporate lawyer who's like trying to squash the little guy at the best of his client, you know, his evil corporate overlord. I think that's a more of a thing in our modern world. Yeah, where there's well, more shitty corporations, huge corporations that have yeah, so but much power. I, you know, you, you're reading that that's even changing, right? There are there are corporations that are now trying to make their policies at least environmentally friendly and are announcing they're going to be carbon yeah. neutral or carbon positive, by, you know, or not negative by date certain, all that stuff. But it's one of the reasons why I did not go into criminal law. I did not go into trial or litigation. I did not become a negligence lawyer. I did stuff that people have fun doing. So in a way, I you know, if you look at Thoreau, I'm like completely useless to the virtues of society. <laughs> but I like How can that I be? Do. You have a halo around your head right now. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's a mirror, see? <laughs> I thought that was planned deliberately. It's like, we're going to make a really good um, impact on these guys. The patron saint them. of lawyers. <laughs> funny. Yeah. Patron Jewish saint of lawyers. <laughs> 
So yeah, so so I mean that, that's that's what lawyers' reputation has gone down. They have become there's a whole group of continuing legal education courses about how to be more civil to each other as lawyers. It's insane. I you know I never thought that that would happen. I try to be civil to everybody, but it you know it's hard. I think it comes down to that whole you know bad apples type of thing and with any profession that you just have people who are jackasses and criminals and you know as you have a greater population the higher popula higher percentage of people are jerks and assholes and it it spans the spectrum of occupation. Well, I think it is like is but lawyers do have this amazing power. Like I'm I uh, flip burgers for a living, Mark, and if I'm good or bad, nobody's going to be like, oh, he really influenced the world because of his evil <laughs> burger flipping. <laughs> or good burger flip. Nobody cares. But lawyers can really do stuff. I mean, like the whole, um, what was her name? Erin Brockovich character. I don't know how true that movie was. Well, she wasn't a lawyer, though. She was like a paralegal. I know, but, you know, I mean, using the law. Yeah, but you you could do that as a burger flipper, Greg. You could go to Congress. You could talk to. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not actually joking. You could actually no, know, walk into Congress, and if you had something that you wanted to change, people don't know exactly how powerful they can be if they just walk into Congress and try. Like to Like Mr. Pettix goes to Washington. <laughs> sure. I'll be on the Diaz crying. Like just listen. Well, I, I mean, if justice. you guys are going to get into this, I mean, look at who the, we had a president for four years who didn't know the first thing about government and wasn't a lawyer. And before that, we had a president who was a lawyer. And now we have a president who was trained as a lawyer. And you have people who work in government. Things change when you understand how it works, which is yeah. not to say that only lawyers know how it works. But if you do have an understanding of how it works, it's very different. I'm a copyright lawyer. I belong to the Copyright Society of the USA. Some of the smartest people and most knowledgeable people that I know about copyright are not lawyers because they studied it and they understand it and they figure out how it works. It's, it's more about study than, than this. Last night, Bill Maher did a thing about how he's sick of all these celebrities and actors and actresses saying they're going to be governors and presidents because they have no skills at doing that. They have skills at being actors. They should be actors. They shouldn't be governors and presidents. So it's really about your background, your knowledge, your skill, and, and how you can exploit that. Yes, lawyers have particular skill with regard to how laws work and how the courts work and all that stuff. But And that informs every transaction that I do. But and that's all it is. It's it's just a it's just a series of tools and skills that I have. That's all. How how stealthy are you with those skills? I mean, are you like one of those assassin type lawyers who can come in and like just ruin somebody's case, or are you more upfront and and how you address well, your opponent? Like a ninja. <laughs> it's a ninja attorney, exactly. Okay, so I, I, I represent a record company, and I drafted a form contract. And now one of my clients is going to sign that contract. So I'm sort of in the middle of a conflict of interest. But I know exactly where my contract as drafted for the record company is vague in favor of the record company. So I called it out. And the consultant who's in between was laughing at us because he said, but you wrote it. I said, I know, but I wrote it for the record company, <laughs> not for the lawyer, for the other <laughs> So yes, I can do that. And yes, there are times when you're intentionally vague in a contract and there are times when you're wildly specific, but, um, and you do it depending on which side you're on. So I don't know, am I ninja? Am I stealthy? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm careful. Let's put that. <laughs> right. And lawyers are known to be careful, which is why uh, terms of service agreements are approximately 500 pages long and we're all expected to read it all and agree to it. And I know I, there was, I think an interview I saw of yours where you were 
telling people that um, if you're going to complain about social media, don't be on social media. If you think they're going to take your, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm of a similar point of view. I feel the same way. People are complaining about freedom of speech being infringed and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I lost an account on Facebook because I suggested that Trump was leading us into a civil war. Somebody didn't appreciate that. I got banned and lost my account. So, so it's like, and that was last, that was, I think, in May of 2020, before... Before he did lead us into a Before story. any of that stuff happened. You know, because he's... Like he had, Isaac Asimov, you predicted him. You just, it was much faster for you. Right, exactly. <laughs> Not yeah, well, you know, well, I always saw that, that Trump was trying to compare himself to Lincoln. I'm like, you know, the only way I see him comparing himself to Lincoln is how he is agitating one aspect of our society to go against another aspect of our society. And I'm like... Eh, it's been a benefit to me. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I've been an independent since like 1984. And so I'm willing to vote either side, depending upon who I feel more comfortable with in terms of different. I don't think Lincoln was agitating for division. He wanted the South to agree and they didn't because they love slavery so much. I don't think. Right. I didn't say that, that Lincoln was agitating. I was saying that Trump was because oh, he, he wants the cause of civil war. Yes. Right. Exactly. That's what he wanted. So that he could Lincoln be, was so he could be, war. so he could be Lincoln and stop that civil war that he created. That he was my have stopped point. it though. He would not know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, he would have just told his guys to stand down and stand back. He, he wouldn't. They wouldn't have listened. They would have taken that differently. He doesn't know how to do that. He's not a natural leader. But I don't want to talk about Trump because he's out. Yeah, <laughs> right. He's gone. <laughs> I'm. I agree with you totally. So, but um, there was something. There was some issue that I wanted to discuss having to do with um, right. Greg has been bugging me because he's like, all right. So we have this guy on. Is he responsible for ruining like karaoke? So, in other words, <laughs> in what way? Well, because. Lots of karaoke manufacturers are copyright infringers oh. um, because one of the main things is the syn synchronization licenses where they um, don't, they're not paying, they, they may pay the copyright order for the music, but they're not necessarily paying for the synchronization of the lyrics to the music. And so nearly every United States uh, karaoke manufacturer has gone out of business or has been sued by, I think like Sony has gone after them, um, not just in the United States, but Canada as well. Um, and there, I think there's like two, maybe two manufacturers left in the United States um, that are keeping their noses clean and I think and abiding by those regulations. But, you know, it's tricky for karaoke because when a song is popular, that's when people want to sing it. And it's hard to get those permissions up front because you don't know how much money you're going to make selling those karaoke tracks, because most karaoke hosts are notorious music pirates as well. So the manufacturers aren't making their you money back. Blame, you can't be trying to blame me because these hosts are pirates. They, I mean, <laughs> using your words. It ain't my fault, buddy. <laughs> so, Matt, are you saying they didn't pay for the lyrics? They just paid for the music rights? Well, the they might not different. have even paid for those. I'm just saying that that's oh. an extra step in the permission process to be able to sell those as karaoke tracks. So if karaoke is such a popular thing in America, why doesn't one company just say, hey, we're going to do this above board? I bet they'll still make a profit by paying the rights. Radio stations do. They pay BMI ASCAP things. And it's, why it's can't they much, do that? Unfortunately, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, you see, know? Greg, it's more complicated. See, I don't know nothing. <laughs> Fake lawyer here. Fake uh, lawyer. A radio station only has to pay 
BMI, ASCAP, GMR, or CSAC for the right to perform music. It doesn't pay the record company. It doesn't pay anybody else. That's all it pays. Now, the U.S. is one of, uh, I think, a half a dozen countries in the okay. world does the, that does not have what's colloquially called a broadcast mechanical, where the record owner also gets a royalty when a record is played on, on the radio. Every other country in the world, except maybe China, Iran, and the U.S., don't have that right. So the radio stations lobby regularly because there is a radio station in every congressional district, and that radio station contributes to the congressman's re-election campaign to make sure that they don't ever have to pay for the right to use the records. That's one side. What you're talking about on karaoke is, it, as, as uh, Matt said at the beginning, there is a fair number of rights that are implicated in a karaoke comp, uh uh, song, karaoke recording, which gets displayed. So the you need rights to the print. Uh, there are four main rights in music publishing. There's mechanical, there's performance, there's print, and there's synchronization. Mechanical is the right to use music in a, um, that so that is, is the right to hear music with the aid of a mechanical device, a piano roll, a record, a computer, a di digital download. Performance is the right to hear the music, the public performance of the music. Print is obvious, it's the print. And sync is the right to use the music in time relation to a visual image. So karaoke implement, implicates all of them because you need to make a copy of the song so you can hear it in order to sing it, whether it includes the lyrics or not, you still need the mechanical, right? You need the right to perform the music. You may not buy that as the karaoke manufacturer. The venue will buy that right to perform it, but it has to be done. Print is implicated because you're actually gonna display the lyrics and that's part of the exclusive rights in Copyright Act includes the right to display and, and to copy the words. And synchronization happens because the music is used in time relation to an image, whether it's rolling hills or someone driving a car, whatever it is, all of those rights are implicated. So, And then you add in the fact that, for example, Shakira's big hit, Hips Don't Lie, has 10 publishers who are part of it. So all 10 of them must give you all three rights. So in effect, you need 30 licenses for one song. Well, and so, so everyone the out there should know that he represented Shakira's um, publishing company too, right? Right. I cleared that song. I, yeah. I represented Shakira. She was okay. that song was going to be used in uh, in the FIFA World Cup. I can't many years ago, and we were told it was going to happen in three weeks. And I had three weeks to clear the song. And of the ten publishers. They each made claims saying, I own this much, I own that much. And the total number of claims was 135%. Wow. So we had to figure out a way to get it down to 100, which we did eventually. But there did are 10 publishers. I've cleared other songs where there are 20 publishers on it. That's just how it goes. Did you find out if Shakira's hips actually do lie? I don't. I never actually met the woman. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Greg, you had mentioned before about his involvement with Holland Dozier Holland, which was the big songwriters for Motown. Didn't you? You had a question about that, right? Well, no, I was just impressed. I just love oh. their work. And I was like, wow, that's a huge because I mean, their so Motown songs, they wrote like 90% of them, it seems. And you must, the royalties that must be coming in from all their catalog must be staggering. Some people told me it was the second most valuable catalog in the world after the Beatles. And I, I didn't believe it because there's always the stones. Right. Right. Um, so, but it, the, what the deal we did was he, um, 
Holland Dozier and Holland each borrowed money from somebody. Um, it was like the first Pullman loan. It was like a Bowie bond after Bowie did his. Uh, and they borrowed a bunch of money and they got themselves into trouble um, by not paying taxes. So we had to get them out. And it was a very, very complicated thing to get them out. And we borrowed a lot of money. Those catalogs are worth were worth a fortune. They're worth even more now because the value of catalogs has just gone through the roof because the tax law is about to change where when you sell your catalog, you're going to pay a higher rate of tax and the interest rates are ridiculously low. Plus there's a ton of money sitting around waiting to get invested. So the, and there are fewer and fewer quality catalogs. So the demand for the quality catalogs is going up, up, up. Oh, it's true because there's less people actually making real music these days. They're making like more electronic and sampled music. I would imagine that sampling probably gets uh, hit very hard in the entertainment business because there's a lot of royalties that have to be paid and people. Yeah, well, um, I have a client who just released a song a couple of weeks ago. She sampled something from the Wu-Tang Clan and they took 60% of the song and she had two other writers with her. So between them, the three live, the three writers who wrote an original track each got 13% of the song and the Wu-Tang took 60. So I say to my clients, don't sample, just write original music and write music that other people are going to want to record because that's why Gershwin makes millions of dollars a year. That's why, Bob Dylan's catalog is worth hundreds of millions and Paul Simons is worth hundreds of millions and Neil Young's is worth hundreds because people can record these songs and sing them also. But if you're just going to do a straight hip hop song, it's not going to be valuable after it's done. Do you think any of the hip hop acts are sampling Gershwin? No. <laughs> they should. That would be great. So yeah, I read that you represent the estates of George and Ira Gershwin. And I, I'm curious about that is like, how does an estate seek you out? I mean, how do you get that kind of business? Well, where somebody's been dead for like a hundred years. Well, I mean, the copyrights live for a hundred years, right? Yeah. So George died in 37. And what happened was where I got involved in with my partner at the time was a, a, some work by the Gershwin family and their publishers to convince um, all of the performing rights societies in the Commonwealth territories, the UK Commonwealth, that the music should be treated as a joint work with the lyrics, because without having done that, George's music would have gone public domain, free to be used on any commercial for tampons or whatever they wanted, with no royalties going back to the Gershwins, but the lyrics would be protected. So we went around and we convinced all the societies which had that rule, lyrics separate from music, that they should be treated as joint uh, as they are in the U.S. And that preserved their stream of revenue for as, for as long as Ira lived. And with regard to Porgy and Bess, using DuBose Haywood's life as a measuring life, it was a, it was a big project. It took about... So, like, so like Santa Flush could have used Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> Because it made yeah. your toilet tank water blue. That would have been a but perfect only, commercial. But only in the UK or, or Canada or South Africa, not here. <laughs> I was Dang. just wondering why you picked tampons as your example for Gershwin. Because it's offensive <laughs> to George and Ira. <laughs> yeah, their and ghosts the would haunt. Used. It was the example we used to the societies. Oh, okay. So it was one that had been used before. It wasn't one you just picked today. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like, for some reason, this is in Mark's head today. Tampons uh, is the example. Adult diapers using George's, <laughs> using Rhapsody in Blue. Now, you also represent Elvis Presley's estate. Is that correct? 
I did. I did you this did. with another with another guy who asked me to come join him and work with him. He it, they were min, mainly his clients, but what we did for George and I for for Elvis was we terminated his then single worldwide publisher and then granted publishing rights in each territory of the world, a separate deal for Germany, Italy, UK, France, Japan, Australia, and all of that. And in so doing, we increased the revenue then uh, from the year we terminated to the next year by fourfold, 400% more money. So um, part of that was because we got a lot of advances, but what it also did is it made each publisher in each territory committed to the catalog. So it was their money at risk. They had to go out and earn that money back as opposed to the big multinational saying, okay, we have this catalog, please work it for us, Mr. German administrator, Mr. French administrator. So it was different because it was their money at risk. So the effect was to have a significantly more enhanced catalog. Which I've heard made that, uh, in England, they've uh, lowered it. So in England, I know that Elvis's first album, I think, is in the public domain already, like the early rock and roll. That's because there, with regard to recordings, they went public domain 50 years after their release. And that's still the law, but I'm talking publishing, which is a little different. Yeah. Which major foreign country, like uh, most highly populated, do you think, is the biggest offender or for people holding copyrights? That's not, doesn't have strong enough copyright laws, in your opinion. I can't believe you just said that. I was reading an article yesterday that the new U.S. trade representative talked about removing um, Canada and Switzerland from the list because wow. both of those do not have proper protection for copyright. How's that? Canada, I was not expecting those two. Canada, because yeah, like I thought Canada was uh, pretty strict because I know that they had gotten nailed in a major lawsuit for, for karaoke purposes about 10 years ago. So I was just surprised to hear that they're um, so, that so lax. Switzerland, Switzerland has been removed from the list because they changed their laws, but Canada uh -huh. remains on the list because they haven't. So, you know, but. It, so I always thought they were part of the United States, practically Canada. <laughs> they followed our rules pretty much. Yeah, a lot of people think that. Yeah, that's they, what we discussed oh. in one of our earlier episodes. We <laughs> called it America North. Right. Canadians tend to not appreciate that. I don't know. They, they don't know. Space. I don't know why. Well, I think this is a really good time to get into our actual client for today. And our client for today is Cancel Me Too. And essentially what that comes down to is discussing what is commonly called cancel culture today. And I'm, I'm wondering if that goes into the, um, the copyright areas as well. For example, you know, you have somebody say like, um, R. Kelly, who is a, a major R&B singer and had uh, recently major allegations pushed up against him, which essentially caused him to become a target of what's quote-unquote called the cancel culture. He was culture. convicted, though. How does that affect um, how he gets royalties um, in the long run? Doesn't. Doesn't at all. If no one buys his music, then he won't. But his rights and his revenue streams will be the same. The, the amount will fluctuate based on demand. So he could be in prison and be the richest guy in America still. So long as he's still Serving in life. If he didn't forfeit his copyrights when he went to jail, then sure, that's what it is. Yeah. He's got it. Is there a way you'd forfeit your copyrights by going to jail? How does that work? 
Not to my knowledge. Oh, only would be like vol voluntarily is it would be the only. Yeah, he way. might have sold them to pay his lawyer, right? Because lawyers, you know, are so sneaky and everything. They need money. <laughs> I've heard that about lawyers. I've heard, except that. for you, because you've got a halo. Right. But <laughs> well, I need money too. <laughs> is is that what happened to the Beatles in like the eighties? Michael Jackson owned their catalog for a while, or part of their catalog, because they ran out of money or didn't own the rights or something. Well, is that true? I'm not 100% sure of the story, but this is how I understand it. Um, Paul McCartney became friendly with Michael Jackson. Paul explained to Michael Jackson how important music publishing is. And Michael turned around and bought the ATV catalog, which is where, um, <laughs> oh, wow. where, their, catalog, where their songs live. Then Michael turned around and sold 50% of that to Sony. So for many years, Sony was known as Sony ATV. When Michael died, the other 50% was purchased by Sony. You no longer hear of it as Sony ATV. It is now Sony. Now, that investment by Michael Jackson paid off in, to an extraordinary extent. I think he paid $10, $20, 30000000 million for their catalog when he bought it. And the 50% he sold to Sony was worth $700 million. That's a good profit. That pays for a lot of hush money. <laughs> and, and But to your point about cancel culture, I mean, that deal happened after he passed. Right. So the value, the, the fact that the asset still lives, it's like a building. You can build a building and be the biggest creep in the world, but the building has value, even if you're the biggest creep in the world. So you buy the building and you move the other guy out. Um, th that's part of you know, copyright lawyers are stuck with the notion that copyright only lives for a limited period of time. Whereas if I spend $10 million to build a building, it will stay forever until it falls down. My copyright will expire at some point. So there's a difference. Do you think it's a positive thing what everyone calls the Disney law? Because basically Disney pushed the extending the copyright. I think that was 10, 20 years ago. Do you would you think it's great if like nothing goes into the public domain, even after 200 years? No, or? no, no. I think the public domain is important. I think it should happen. But the challenge, the, it wasn't just Disney. We did it for the Gershwins as well um, because they wanted their copyrights to remain. But the, the, the point is that the U.S. law at that time was out of sync with the rest of the world. The U.S. law at the time was life plus 50 and the rest of the world was generally life plus 70. So that's why it was added. So they added the extra 20 years? Because I, I had heard it was 70. When did it change to 70? Late 90s, I think. Okay, so it wasn't that too too late in the chain for my recollection. Okay. So, so Greg, basically what that means is your swank boy will live on for you. You'll keep getting copyrights for your publication 70 years after you die. I'll keep getting zero royalties <laughs> even after I'm dead. From your, your... Well, you will get zero royalties after you're dead, but your heirs may get a lot of money because no, there's zero. There's the value zero. The value will go up after you die. Just look at oh, yeah. Michael Jackson. Look at everybody else. All their, mm -hmm. all their copyrights get more valuable. Elvis, they all get more valuable. I'm expecting my sock collection will get very valuable after I die. People Are they clean? Like... Yeah, they're clean. They're all, you know, like white socks. So I think that they, but they'll come in handy for people. Some fetishists might like them if they were dirty. Some I sicko. Know. I don't think I have any fetishists who are following me around. Are lawyers known for being the ones with the most fetishes? Is that? The, I don't uh, know. Not really. 
<laughs> so earlier we were talking about Facebook and the thing that's been going on the past year. Is there any, could you imagine one of these like guys saying you took me on Facebook, like taking it to court? Like, do you think any judge would even accept that and say, oh, this is a trial case? Maybe this could sure change. I understand your question. Um, that how people are getting taken down on Facebook, even though it's not a utility, but it has become something that's almost more vital than the telephone company in most people's lives. Do you think, could you picture that going to trial or a judge would say, no, you don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah, I'm sure, no- there, I'm sure there will be lawyers who will take it to trial. Listen, when I was a prodigy, uh, we had invented the chat room. Okay. So you'd go into a room and there'd be 20 people and they'd all be mm-hmm. talking. So at one point um, prodigy was sued because a visitor to a chat room went out and slept with someone else in the chat room and the visitor got AIDS. And so they sued Prodigy because the guy got AIDS. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating. So, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that, that's what I said. And the case was dismissed immediately. But the most interesting part about that case was that the lawyers issued a press release about having filed the case. And on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, the top two thirds of the page with the name and address of the lawyer and about two lines were about the actual case. So that's you the guy who should lawyer. have been canceled. Right. That, that, so, that lawyer needed to be canceled. Right. So, <laughs> but the notion of, of someone bringing an absurd lawsuit happens all the time. So it was done mainly for marketing purposes is why they brought that case. It's like they were just it's trying to get more business. So it's like advanced ambulance chasing. So one of the major cases that we got resolved at Prodigy was a case called Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. The guys who ran Stratton Oakmont were featured in a movie called The Wolf of Wall Street. And Stratton Oakmont was, there was a, there was a discussion board on Prodigy where someone said Daniel Porush, who was then an officer of, of the company, is a crook. And Porush sued Prodigy saying, we were responsible for not taking that down and therefore we were liable to him for defamation. And he sued us for $200 million. We got the case dismissed by saying, we're sorry. And we took the post down. Yeah. So think about that for a minute. <laughs> Just saying you're sorry. Right. So, you know, you can bring, anyone can sue anybody for anything, anytime, anywhere in the United States. It's not like the rest of the world. You don't pay for the loser's lawyer's fees. In the UK, you pay. If you sue and you lose, you pay the, the you pay the other side's lawyer's fees. So there's an incentive not to bring the lawsuit. So there's nothing wrong. Everybody sues for crazy things. I don't, but that's the problem with lawyers. They do. On the other hand, they will tell you they're bringing the lawsuit because they're trying to expand the law or push the boundaries, which is entirely legit. But when you get crazy stuff like that prodigy AIDS case, it's it's not good for the for the profession. Just like our friend Rudy Giuliani, who I think is a disgrace to the legal profession. I think everything he's done for Trump is disgusting and he should be disbarred. But that's just my opinion. Well, if he, he's, you know, working for Trump is almost like its own disbarment. Well, for certain things. But I mean, the cases he filed and the positions he took were all, none of which were based on fact, are, are antithetical to what the, the ethics rules require of lawyers. So I think he should be the spark. I'm not the only one. The New York State Bar Association has written that. There's people in Florida who have, but it was, you know, he's, he's bad news. He should be disbarred from humanity in my book. Just, well, he's barely a human being at this point. I, I don't want to kill the guy. I don't <laughs> want him to be a lawyer. 
<laughs> Apparently, Greg is busy canceling Rudy Giuliani right now. His life. But, but what about Andrew Giuliani uh, running for governor of New York, though? That's uh, a fascinating thing coming down the pike. I was watching something about him where he was once on a reality show for um, up-and-coming golfers. And even the people on the reality show didn't like Andrew Giuliani. That they, thought, they said that he really likes to hear himself talk. Yeah. So. He's quite a guy. My wife remembers when Rudy was... Uh, inaugurated as the mayor and and little andrew maybe three four five was on the podium however old he was he was busy picking his nose the whole time oh. <laughs> it was like like home training for for later work so uh, getting back to the the advent of the cancel culture now personally i see cancel culture kind of having been created back in the 80s with the advent of like the Parents Resource Music Center back when they were trying to take out artists at the time like Ozzy Osbourne or Twisted Sister for violating the morals of our youth and trying to shut them down and trying to shut down Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. So it was more of like a Republican thing back then to cancel people out. And things have kind of flipped in here into the future where now... I think largely because really the Me Too movement um, where those actually legitimate egregious offenses are happening where people kind of deserve to have that castigation but at the same time people are also being canceled for even just being supporters of trump or just, being just, just being a supporter like people are canceling friends out people are losing friendships like on facebook and other social media strictly because they supported trump and um which i find is like a really interesting thing i mean i don't necessarily buy that you know Trump supporters are intelligent, but I don't know that necessarily they should lose their friendships because of that. You know, I just don't know There's how the argument that Trump is like, it's not like it's like, I didn't like Ronald Reagan when I was a teenager. I didn't want to vote for him, but when I was 21, but it wasn't like what Trump, Trump is such a really hateful person that if your friend likes him, you got to question like, what kind of person is this that would want this man to run our country, a racist, horrible person. It's like, I I have friends who I love who are Trump fans, and I, it makes me shake my head and be like, there must be something dark in their soul that they could say, yeah, I want this guy to run well, fate. I, or I, don't, I don't know about that. I think you really have to look at it differently. I think that people yeah. who support, support Trump um, align with his notion of victimhood. And that mm -hmm. they too are victims, and he's out there to fight for them as victims yeah. of the elite liberal society. Okay, and and that's um, and and that's where it comes from. I happen to agree with you. There are people that I was friendly with, and then revealed incredible support for Trump. Wrote, posted horrible things about what happened to Ahmed Arbery, the jogger who was shot. shot you know posted horrible things about George Floyd as if he deserved to be lynched and because he was a drug dealer or something like that. And it made me question my view of them. I didn't mind yeah. that they were Republicans. Right. I didn't mind that they were, uh, they supported smaller government and, and lower taxes. That was all fine. And that's a healthy debate. But when they say things like Floyd deserved it, because he passed a counterfeit bill and he was a drug dealer, it made me nuts. And so I really have distanced myself from those people. Um, are they still friends? Maybe. I don't know. But I don't talk politics to them at all. 
Right. And I think that's kind of where I've gone with a lot of people is I just back away from discussing politics. I think I kind of test them out a little bit in terms of what kind of a human being they are, like where where does their heart lie? Do they truly care about their fellow human beings? Because essentially the whole George Floyd thing, regardless of whatever he did, was a modern day lynching, just to use the term that you said. You know, it it wasn't done with a rope, but it was done with a knee. And that's the same thing that happened. And, you know, I think that dealing with these issues is, you know, we can say one positive thing about Trump is that he lifted the rock of America and exposed the worms that were there. You know, that we thought maybe unintentionally lifted the rock. Yeah. He didn't realize he was lifting his own rock by being part of this process. And it also wouldn't have happened at an earlier time. I mean, the Internet amplifies everything. Everything, Yeah. In the smallest bit. So, I mean, that's a big part of what happens. But ultimately, the I don't know. I used to think it was very. My daughter had a bat mitzvah, and she had seventy of her closest friends there. I think she's down to like six now. Not that from politics, but there's only so many people you can really be close with, right? And really have deep relationships with and talk to. So uh, my circle's gotten smaller and and friendlier and closer. But I I don't know how it's happened to others, but that's how it's happened for me. I just don't talk to the people that just are on that edge of the world. I think the pandemic has been pretty uh, helpful in terms of lessening one's uh, growth for friendships as well, where, I mean, it it exposed a whole different level within American society and global society in terms of, you know, where you felt regarding the, the, the validity of the virus and the validity of vaccinations. And you go, why are some people acting this way it, it becomes are they intelligent or not and is that what we're dealing with are we dealing with finally we're getting to the peter principle everyone is heading it to their own level of incompetence and uh they're talking beyond themselves and i th- that may be what's happening like on social media too is like everyone is we're finding out who the real you know incompetence are the, the, the politicization of the mask issue was a disaster. It was just terrible. And ridiculous. I, I, for one, forgive the CDC for making mistakes a little over a year ago about the virus because nobody knew. Yeah, it was a novel yeah, virus. It's like, come on, people, give them a so, break. So they didn't know. So they said, don't wear a mask. Okay, now you have to wear a mask. It's okay. Whatever it is, they did, they did. But, you know, fortunately, touch wood, I didn't get the vaccine. I didn't get... Uh, I didn't catch the disease and I got vaccinated. So I escaped it. My whole family did too. So I'm very grateful for that. And I just think that people that don't get vaccines, fine, don't get vaccinated. I don't care. You'll get the disease and you'll have it a horrible time. It's up to you. In defense of the CDC, I remember a lot of the reason was that there just weren't enough masks. So they wanted only healthcare workers to have them. They didn't want every Tom, Dick and Harry to buy the masks. And then there would be none for the nurses and doctors in the emergency. Right, exactly. And I, that I was know, part of it. makes sense to me. It's fine. Yeah, it was part of it. But still, I mean, if they don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. Get sick. Then you'll be, <laughs> then you'll be sorry. Yeah. It's like, they're just idiots. Well, no, they, they actually hold that up as a badge of honor. I know like hardcore pro-Trump supporters who got COVID and they survived. And they're like, see, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't such a bad thing. So that's why it's okay. Lucky. 
that's still right luck. exactly but they're not going to look at it as luck they're looking at it as you know even six months later they still can't smell or taste anything they're like well you know it's just a symptom but i didn't die it's still a hoax they just get stuck on the whole death statistic too it's like really that's not the issue here the reason we shut things down wasn't specifically because of deaths from the virus it's deaths because of people who got the virus being in the hospital and preventing people who are in car accidents or having other life-threatening issues not being able to have a bed because idiots got the freaking virus and keep the people who need it from getting it. anyway. So sorry, I'm on. I'm, you know, CDC stands for canceled damn culture. You know that, Greg? No, I did not. <laughs> but I do want to get back to the whole thing of the internet where I find myself getting into arguments about cancel culture almost every day because most of my friends are very. I'm very liberal. Are they trying to cancel um, you? I'm basically like a pinko socialist commie, and <laughs> I I find that uh, I find that even my liberal friends, I, every day I'm trying to argue with them about like, oh, can I sing this song at karaoke or is this okay? And so here's an example: I own a copy since the '80s of the Turner Diaries, which American Nazis they actually just call the book. It's like their Bible. It's basically a sci-fi book. You own the Turner Diaries. I do. Even the eighties, it was hard to get. It was almost samastat. It wasn't canceled, but it was really hard to find. And I think it's very valuable to know your enemy. I don't want anything canceled. I'm like with the ACLU. Like, remember when we were kids? The ACLU fought for the Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. Remember that in the news? It was a big thing because they're like, guys, it is a slippery slope. Everyone should be able to say whatever the fuck they want, and. I know there's a lot of bad stuff to be said, but then who's going to say what's bad, what's good? Like you got taken out from Facebook. I know that wasn't the government, but just because you were making a joke actually against Trump, but they took it. So I always get in arguments, as you can imagine, because I'm pretty much an extremist about freedom of speech. But well, you know, I got that TikTok video taken down for hate speech too. You did. Yeah, yeah, which was weird because it was just a synopsis. Just, of, oh yeah, it was, just, it was just a synopsis of one of our episodes. But oh, they yeah. took it down for hate speech. I appealed it, and they said it was still hate speech. I'm like, on who am I hating? We're talking about QAnon. <laughs> like, I'm like, who, who, who did like that one? I don't know. <laughs> they just said QAnon, and they said, oh, it's probably going to be hateful. The episode was called stupid. JFQ Flat Earth and You. So maybe it's like the flat earthers came after us, or I don't know. Yeah. So. But I find literally every day I'm arguing with a friend, discussing, having a debate. And I'm usually on the other side where they're just like, no, but that's just wrong. And I'm like, well, let me just suggest something. Well, let me just say, I don't have as much gray hair as you do because I gave up those fights. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I still find it fascinating because it is like Matt said, when I was a kid, the censors always seemed to be on the right. And the fact that my side wants to do it it's kind of freaking me out. It's like, wait, we're the ones who love freedom of speech. I mean, that seems the core of liberalism is freedom of speech. There's a lot of stripes to liberalism, you know, gay rights, civil rights. But that to me was the core. Like, don't censor me. We have the right to say things. I have now a, a very clear recollection of the bookcase in the spare bedroom in my house growing up with a prominent copy of Mein Kampf on the shelf. My parents actually, and I was actually born in Germany, and my father at the time was in the in the service, and he lived in one of Hitler's old houses. Wow. He had a copy of Mein Kampf, and he and he read it, and he understood it, and he said never again. So, I mean, I get your point that that's how it goes. 
yeah, you should read that stuff. Especially Jewish people should read Mein Kampf. So when people say, oh, no, Hitler wasn't like that. He's like, no, I read his own words. He said right. he wanted to exterminate the Jews. Right, exactly. He clearly said it. Exactly. Well, so would Hitler have been canceled now, Greg? <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> you know, I, I, you hear those debates about people could well, say they're getting Mark. They say Trump is the same, that uh, he's Hitler reincarnated, right? I think he's the way bad. he's his populist movement and the way he's achieving success is by appealing to the victims, just like Hitler did. I mean, it's very similar. Yeah, the, guys, I think the I'm difference really is, is that he's not really pointing out a particular group of people other than perhaps Democrats for censure and for attack. You know, I mean, he's always said, like, the Democrats out to get him and what have you. But, um, yeah, I think that's the difference between him is Hitler just came out and just said, you know, take out the Jews. But Trump uses the coded language, you know. He says urban. The, this city, which is very urban, is a shithole. The shithole yeah, country of Africa. Coded Remember is different. That? I mean, you could call him Hitler light, maybe. Yes. Hitler um, censored. Or, or Pol, Pol Pot Jr. Possibly. You guys don't live in New York, right? No. No, Greg yeah. is from New York, though. I mean, we hated Trump forever. Trump I know. I remember the, that. I hated Trump, Trump before he was ever elected for, I mean, he was even running for anything. I'm like, I hated this guy for 30 years. Mark, and, I read a statistic that you guys, New York City, voted in 2016 like 90% for Hillary because you correct. guys knew what a shit he was before the rest of the country. For, that's 100% correct. The county, New York County, which is Manhattan, went 9 to 1 against Trump. Because they knew. <laughs> Right. Now it was it went seven to three in 2020, but it was nine to one in 2016. I mean, come on, the guy we knew what he was. Yeah, that's surprising. I mean, anytime I saw him on TV, starting with like the Trump of the Deal, the Art of the Deal, way back with the Trump of the Deal, way back when, I was like, this guy's like serious douchebaggery. And I was just never and everything I saw him do basically in the public from that point on, I'm like on it just showed me what this guy's character was and i wasn't from new york or anything but it's just following him over the years so of media. i'm an entertainment lawyer right so yeah. I mean, as my wife says i represent wannabes and has-beens so, <laughs> so we're thinking what, about changing our show to that as well <laughs> so one of my clients more than one of my clients had been approached by trump to appear on the apprentice and i begged them not to do it and they listened so because it was just i just didn't see it as an any upside for him? All that was going to happen to you're fired. Like, who cares? They could have become the Secretary of the Interior two years ago <laughs> if they were on the office. That would be worse if you knew who the client was. Yeah, that would be worse. You're right. Are you representing like one of the real housewives of New York or something? No, 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 no. A talented musician, but no, oh, okay. no, no. <laughs> Well, we I have come to the end of our hour. This has been a highly enlightening conversation with Mark Jacobson. We really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, we, we're having actually an anniversary show in uh, June 23rd. It's a Wednesday. It's going to be two hours live. If you want to pop your head in uh, for like a minute or two and say hi, we'll give you some kind of weird fake award if you uh, if you want to come. <laughs> Do I have to wear a tux? You don't have to. You can no. come naked if you want to. Greg would appreciate that probably. No, I would. But... <laughs> Give you a chance to meet our our um, our co-host who makes websites for attorneys too. 
We, we were sad that he could make it on today. The funny thing is that we've never had an attorney on our show, and next week we're having another attorney on, so it'll be somebody else to go. You guys what also kind of, what don't know what you're talking about. I believe she is like an advocate in New Jersey. Um, for I don't have the details. I have to get her bio. So I just know that she was like the first African-American woman in her position. I think it's like a judgeship in one of the townships oh, in New Jersey. Or sounds something. good. Yeah, her name is uh, Edwina Martin, if I remember correctly. But um, but anyway, I, I greatly appreciate you coming on. And thank you so much. Oh, one quick sh uh, mention of your the two movies you've got out, which is um, The Virtuoso with Anthony Hopkins and S Snow Babies was the name of it, I believe. And okay. you produced those. Okay, great. And uh, hopefully if you have anything else of interest later on, if you want to jabber about it with us, we'd love to have you on again. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention about your practice or anything else? You want to say what your website is? or Go Knicks. www.markjacobson.com. M-A-R-C. Yes, that's Mark with a C, everybody. Not C-A-R-C, but M-A-R-C. To... What do you call Mark Jacobson at the bottom of the ocean? A tragedy. <laughs> you're one of the good ones, Mark. You called him Jacobson? Yeah, right. Oh, I'm sorry. J J Jacobson? Yeah, Jacobson. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jacobson? What world know. do you live in that you can't pronounce Jacobson? And you just said it, too. You just said it. <laughs> you did. I thought you were making another joke. <laughs> oh, no. This is this this whole life of ours. I was trying to make a joke, but it was actually a, a tribute to you. Oh, well, thank you again. And this has been another edition of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. See you guys next week. You've left the offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. It's over. It's over. It's time for you to go home. It's over. It's over. Go away now.